0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. At one point, there were six women, four of them women of color, vying to be the next U.S. Senator in Colorado. And we ought to recognize that the three finalists for the U.S. Senate all happen to be white men. It's no accident. It's in part because of America's original and persistent sin, the sin of racial injustice. We'll speak with the former candidates about the state of politics. Plus, a Denver nurse who's also a dancer combines her skills to bring attention to compassion fatigue during the pandemic. And summer is here. Time for our master gardener to answer your questions as the seasons change and things heat up.
1: Aside from corn and tomatoes, what else could I plant that can withstand the heat and will not burn up in the direct sun?
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado voters will pick the Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate next Tuesday. Democrats John Hickenlooper and Andrew Romanoff are vying to face off against Republican incumbent Cory Gardner as one of the country's most closely watched races. At one point, six women, all Democrats and most of them women of color, sought the party's nomination. But at a time when the party relies heavily on minority and female voters, none of them made the primary ballot. Four of the candidates, Lorena Garcia, Stephanie Rose Spaulding, Michelle Frigno warren and State Senator Angela Williams, join me now. Welcome to all of you. Good morning. morning. Thank you. I want to set the stage a little here because we're going to be talking about race a lot in this conversation. Stephanie and Angela are black. Michelle is white. Lorena is Latina. Lorena, why don't you start us off? Why do you think it is so important to have more diverse candidates in a race like this? Oh, geez. And we only have how long?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's, what's important is representation. And I think that the reason why specifically as a woman of color, I talk about representation is because I have yet to see representation from the communities that I'm a part of. And when we have women, when we have women of color, I mean, the fact that we've, we had six women of color or six women running for U.S. Senate after not having a single woman run since 1998 is actually quite shameful. And each one of us that decided to run for this, we should be very proud. But the fact that it took 20 years for more candidates to say, OK, I'm going to run in this field, it shows that we are living in a system where we feel like we can't run for seats like this.
0: And that needs to change. Let's talk about those obstacles you all encountered in this race. Angela Williams, tell me about your experience. Well,
3: I think, thank you for the question. I think my experience as the only sitting elected official in the race um, was one in which I was proud to run with, with all of these women and see the, the, the landscape change so women would step up and run. Um, I think some of the biggest obstacles for, for me was, number one, I was an elected official. Number two, I thought I had all the experience. Number three, I know how to fundraise. So I've campaigned and, and won races over the last 10 years. But it was the party, Democratic Party in Washington that you know, chose John Hickenlooper as the uh, person they were going to endorse in a time when we need so many more women and other voices from other communities running. And so when that occurred, it just put a a kibosh on um, fundraising. I know how to fundraise, right? Endorsements. It put a squash on endorsements and I describe it as an environment where um, it also just froze the electorate and Even before John got in the race, it was a matter of, well, let us wait and see. Well, wait a minute. We had a broad base of candidates running for this office, but I would say those were the biggest obstacles for me and and the others probably also. Getting the endorsements, getting the um, endorsements of organizations who support women who want to elect more women. And so you can just look at the whole campaign gamut and everything was brought to a, a halt.
0: And was there a moment or maybe an, even an example of a conversation you had with a donor where you realized that John Hickenlooper's entry was going to derail your campaign?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as can, as a candidate, who, like I said, who knows how to fundraise, being on the phones, you know, 24-7... It was people saying, well, I don't want to commit yet. What if John gets in the race? Um, Let's wait and see. And so um, I continued as long as I felt it made sense to continue. But I was in a little bit of a different situation because I had to decide whether I was going to run, continue the race for the United States Senate or I was going to run for my state Senate seat. And so given all the experience I have, I just had to sit down with my team and and we made some decisions that um, we just could not proceed forward, given the current landscape of having um, a former governor in the
0: race. And Michelle Farigno Warren and Lorena Garcia, each of you fell short of the number of signatures needed to get your names on the primary ballot. You both sued the state, arguing that the COVID-19 pandemic made it harder to collect signatures, but your efforts were not successful. Michelle, what happened to your case? Yeah, thank you
4: for the question and thanks for the opportunity to tell a little bit more of the story of the women who ran in the U.S. Senate race. So there were um, a lot of different challenges that were really around COVID. You know, we had put together a sound strategy and plan and an unforeseen global pandemic was not a part of the strategy. So, you know, as we were clearing that March 17th deadline, as the pandemic was beginning to become more, let's say it was sort of global news that moved more locally, I think people were just very concerned as they should have been. And um, instead of wanting to stop and talk to people on their way into grocery stores or in parks, they were trying to get toilet paper and get the things needed for their kids to be able to start homeschooling, et cetera. So there's a lot of dynamics. I, I know we started um, looking at actual numbers so the weekend before, the weekend after, just in the beginning of March, and we were seeing a decrease by 90%. So when you do door knocking, how many people are going to open the door? And we were getting about a 10% open rate, where some of our, our friends and, and canvassers would get up to 100 signatures a day, they were having trouble getting 10, 15, 20. And so that was a, a real, had a real impact on the ability to collect signatures. And at the end of the, the first part of this General Assembly session, the reality of the caucus process having to go virtual, the fact that signatures were now becoming health and public safety, you know the House had brought up a bill to try to to accommodate um, ballot access, and so I know I was working in conversation with several people in the General Assembly in both the House and the Senate to see if there could be some type of accommodation for petition. Um, candidates like myself, like Lorena, and other people, not only in the U.S. Senate race but also the down ballot races, because we were having such big impacts of people not being able to sign, and there was no provision um, put in the Colorado General Assembly. And so that is why my team and I decided we needed to sue. Never fun to sue the ter- Secretary of State or, or go that route. That was not our plan, but felt it was the only option for ballot access. And we were—I was put on the ballot. Actually, I was one of—I was the fourth woman in Colorado history to even be put on a primary ballot for U.S. Senate in our state, but um, it got appealed from the Denver District Court, went to the Colorado Supreme Court, and then I was taken off the ballot. So very sad week, actually, as people are filling
0: out their ballots. Would have loved to see my name. And the state Supreme Court acknowledged the problems the pandemic caused, but it held that the state election code dictates the number of signatures, and that couldn't be changed. Lorena Garcia, you were denied the ballot, too. How did you feel having to leave the race?
2: Oh, you know, it's I think that's 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 a good way to put it, because a lot of people are saying, sorry, you lost your race. and, And really what it comes down to is we didn't even get a chance to lose. We were robbed of the opportunity because the state legislature did not take into consideration the safety of petitioners, the safety of people at the doors or the equitable access to to the ballot. And they chose they actively chose to not do anything about signature collection. And that's infuriating what I got to say, just infuriating.
0: Now, Stephanie Spaulding, you ran for Congress in 2018, a Black woman in a conservative in a mostly white district in Colorado Springs. What, from your experience, then informed you to run for Senate? Did you know what you were in for?
5: I definitely understood what I was in for, and it informed me to continue to run because our voices matter. And even in that race, running for the fifth congressional district, we had people, part of the party, who just had no expectation or idea that you would have an African-American woman in a predominantly white area to even think that she could win. And we did a lot of transforming minds in our district, and it's necessary to insert our voices in every space. And that's what we learned running in that race, is that if people don't see you, people will not hear you. They will not respect your communities. They will not champion the work that has to be done.
0: And we heard a little bit about donors and some of the difficulty getting donors. Nationally, over the last several decades, women have built powerful fundraising organizations like EMILY's List that work with female candidates. Did they help? And they can... well, no, they
5: did they didn't help in either, either race because there were so many people running and they chose to wait it out to see if there was going to be a woman who arose to the top. And initially, what I did know is that they really wanted Chris ranch. And that kind of insider trading, that kind of trying to manipulate who is going to be the woman is extremely problematic.
0: Lorena Garcia, Stephanie talked about this sort of machine of politics. What does that machine, the traditional party leadership, want its candidates to look like?
2: Oh, well, white, male, graying hair. I mean, the reality is that we, the machine does not want anyone running or anyone winning who's going to stir the pot, who's going to push them to be better, the machine wants to maintain the status quo and not work that hard. I mean, that when you have these amazing candidates that not only change what the face of that seat looks like, but also changes the way that that seat would even operate. I mean, it freaks them out. It's like that book, Who Moved My Cheese? I mean, it freaks them out. And so then they do everything they can in their power to maintain that control, so that way they're not gonna have to, to operate out of their comfort zone.
0: Michelle, we've been talking about the party structure. You're a first-time candidate. What about the basics of making yourself known to voters? Was that hard? You know, we have an
4: amazing state. We have 64 counties, and the system of, of meeting with county chairs and, and going to events actually was probably, for me, the highlight of the entire campaign, was to get out into this uh, into the state's Um, throughout the state, rather, and, and just meet people who really cared about the Democratic platform, who cared about getting people that were in office that really cared about them. And so that was, like I said, an incredible experience. I think one of the things that was really hard for me that I learned throughout the process was while I valued their voices, and many people who were running valued their voices, and I really think the Colorado Democratic Party, and I have a lot of respect for Morgan Carroll and the work that she does to lead the party. Um, I think the reality is, is that their voices really were not being heard
0: because of the national influence, and, and democracy was shut down as a result. And what about the media's role in this? Did you find that it was difficult to get attention Oh my goodness, yes. I mean that is that is a huge a huge a huge issue, a
4: huge barrier especially for women. I know at one point I was talking with one of the reporters on my way out from a forum and said, "Oh, I'm so glad that you are you see that I'm here, you know, I've got things to say. You literally never write about me or any of the other women. We're here and you need to represent us." I think he was so shocked that I would challenge him, but it was just that constant need to challenge the system, not just the system of the party, but the system of the media and just institutions in general. And then, of course, fundraising is a whole other issue to, to
0: challenge. I, I'm not much of a critic, but I am a challenger. And Stephanie, did you find that it was difficult to get attention as well?
5: Absolutely. I think it was intentional in that way where individuals in certain outlets just simply refused because they recognized to, to actually interview and elevate the voices of women would shift the dynamic of what the National Party wanted. I deliberately, very much like Michelle, spoke to anchors on um, on public television or in broadcast television, and they simply would not sit down and elevate the voices of many of the women running.
3: Lorena? This is Senator Williams. I wanted to jump in and say that while we were campaigning, what we also found occurred is that Usually, the press would not even show up unless former Governor Hickenlooper was there. It was like they were following him, but not paying the attention to any of the other
0: candidates. Thank you for sharing that. Lorena, electability is a big issue, and it takes name, ID, and fundraising to be successful in a U.S. Senate race. Is that too much to ask of a candidate who makes the ballot?
2: Well, I think electability is... You know, you determine electability based on who voters vote for. And um, I think electability right now has been very much um, poisoned. And I think going back to the media question, I mean, considering the fact that I don't know how many of the other women who are on this call, even with CPR, have ever been interviewed before today. I mean, the fact that that this is happening, I'm grateful, but it's after the fact you know, and then given also the the chance that, that or the, the language that is used in a recording when, when we are mentioned, we're mentioned as lesser known or newcomer, or, you know, like we're already given, the, we're put into these boxes that already challenge our electability instead of actually presenting us as these are candidates and it's your opportunity to decide. I mean, that's really the media's role. The media's role is not to, To sway people into a direction, the media's role is to inform. And I don't think that that's what happens in political campaigning at all.
0: And so even those words like lesser known are coding, collectability. Mm -hmm. Andrew Romanoff has recognized the role of white privilege and what it's played in his candidacy. Let's listen to what he said in the final Democratic primary debate on Tuesday, June 16th we wouldn't be here, uh, John and Corey and I, if not for the privilege we hold. And we ought to recognize that, that the three finalists for the U.S. Senate all happen to be white men. It's no accident. It's in part because of America's original and persistent sin, the sin of racial injustice. Angela, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I uh, admire
3: Andrew Romanoff uh, for being able to to realize the landscape and the inequities that do occur and those who are privileged. Um, but the, what the, the conversation of the day is about um, racial justice and equality. And we've had protests all over the country about racial equality. I just wanna say that politics is no different. And as my other friends have said on the call, it's about women, it's about women of color. And I think it's important that Andrew has has recognized and we've had this conversation. The Democratic Party knows that African-American women are the largest voting bloc in the country, the biggest supporters of Democrats, but yet we lack the support of representation. Uh, But I admire Andrew, and I think he realizes what's going on in our country today, and we need equality and opportunities for women and women of color In representing the people of Colorado.
0: And to that point, we spoke to a voter who worries the candidates on the ballot don't have grassroots appeal. Her name is Katherine Newell. She's 31 and lives in Highlands Ranch. She's unaffiliated, but used to be a Democrat and left the party after she thought they pushed Senator Bernie Sanders aside in his 2016 presidential election bid.
6: Who is energized right now about these men? Who?
0: You tell me. I want to meet a young person of color who's like, can't wait to cast my ballot for these old white guys again. People are doing it because
6: they're settling. And that's the sadness about America. Like, that's not our, that's not our legacy. That's not really what we're called to do.
0: Angela, what needs to change to give women greater opportunities to attain offices like the U.S. Senate in Colorado?
3: Well, first of all, I think what needs to change is the 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 democratic machine in Washington and in our state needs to realize that the more diverse voices and representation we have, we' are a better state and we're a better country. I think that we should not be settling. But it just appears as though, due to some inequities, that, you know, the state believes that only white influential men can represent this state. And I think any woman who was on this, who was in this race, can represent Colorado. And we have to recognize that. We need to make sure that we get the Democratic Party locally and nationally behind us. Because I believe the people of Colorado do want change. Um, That's why we all ran. It's time for a different voice. And so, to me, that's a cultural change, also, to realize that women and women of color can run and represent. And we need, like, the press, we need the organizations who support women to recognize and not go along with the party establishment or step out because they're afraid of the party establishment. We need to let the people of Colorado let their voices be heard and let them elect who they believe is the best person to represent us to in that future point,
5: races. To that point, can I just add um, <laughs> to the last few questions? One, that it is insufficient for someone to recognize after the fact when all of the women are out of the race, that white privilege is, exists. So if Romanov is genuinely progressive and aware of that, his work should have begun while we were in the race. He should have articulated that, and like many accomplices, moved out the way. That's one thing that needs to happen with white men, move out the way. Secondly, campaign finance reform, making campaigns publicly funded so that the question of electability is off the table and everybody has an equitable way to enter into a race. That is structural change that has to happen if we are going to have more diversity and representation in elected politics. Hear, here, Stephanie.
4: <laughs> I'll just say this. I appreciate what Andrew said, but he talked about the original sin of racism, and I, I concur, but what he didn't mention was patriarchy. The country was built on a system for land-owning men. And that is the system that we continue to talk about being perpetuated and wanting to break in. And so, like I said, I appreciate what Andrew said. I have a lot of respect for him, but I agree with Stephanie. You know, if he and other people truly believe that this is a lament, then action should have backed it up a
0: long time ago and that we need to address not only our racism, but our patriarchy. Well, we'll have to wrap up here. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's State Senator Angela Williams, Michelle Fregno-Warren, Stephanie Rose Spaulding, and Lorena Garcia. They all ran for the Democratic nomination in the U.S. Senate in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: CPR is here for Colorado. The stories, music, and statewide coverage you tune in for wouldn't be possible without your financial support. Because you value what you get from CPR, make an impact with your first donation or make an additional gift. When you do that right now, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by an anonymous donor who values Colorado Public Radio's vital role in our community. Give now and double your gift at CPR.org.
0: We're not quite one week into the official start of summer, so now's the perfect time to talk about the changing seasons when it comes to our gardens and yards. CSU Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthoud here to answer your gardening questions. Hi, Lonnie. Hi, it's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. When we spoke last winter, you hadn't been planning on a vegetable garden this year, but the pandemic got you motivated to plant veggies, kind of like victory gardens. How is your garden doing?
1: So far, it's doing quite well. We're not involved in all of our normal activities, so we've had a lot of time to focus on the garden. And so we've we started a lot of seeds, obviously, and we've been able to harvest regularly, which is really nice because harvest can be very overwhelming at times. There's oftentimes a lot coming in all at once, and what do you do with it? So we've had a lot of uh, lettuce, strawberries, and arugula, things like that, the spring greens. And just today, I harvested some broccoli and cabbage, which was fantastic. So starting to get into the summer vegetables
0: and looking forward to the tomatoes and the peppers. That sounds delicious. Um, You always hear about people whose zucchinis get out of control or who have way too many tomatoes. What do you do when you have extra produce? Well, the first thing I normally do
1: is ask my neighbor if they need something or if they'd like something. But after that, in Birth It, my friend Kelly runs the Birth It Plant a Row for the Hungry group. It's a little Facebook group. And on Tuesdays, we all bring our excess produce to her and she takes them to the House of Neighborly Service, which is in our community. But CSU, for everybody who's not in Birth it, CSU developed this program called the Grow and Give program. And if you Google CSU Grow and Give, you'll It'll take you right there. So it's a a kind of a modern-day victory garden project where you can go get resources on how to grow vegetables, and then you also get the information on where you can donate them within your community. So it's a, a great program that lets us all give back, especially during these really insecure times, and food
0: insecurity is a real thing. Yeah. Now, let's go to a listener question.
3: My name is Marianne Rose. I have two raised garden beds, side by side, one set of tomato plants is growing well and the other are not growing and I'm not sure what I'm doing and how I can get the ones that are small to catch up to the ones that are healthy. Thank you. Wow.
4: There's,
1: there are so many factors that could be at play here. I'm going to list a few of them for Marianne to look through and investigate and see if she can't find the problem. Uh, the first question I would always have is, is the soil exactly the same in both beds? Did you add compost to both beds equally? Did you maybe use different bags of compost? Because sometimes that can create a problem if the compost has some contamination. Um, I'm assuming they get the same amount of sunlight since they're side by side, but is the irrigation the same? So I've had where in my vegetable bed, some of my emitters were plugged and I was wondering what was going on. Um, Also, I've seen where the water pressure was different from the first bed to the second bed. So sometimes it could be a watering issue. And the other thing is if there are different varieties of tomatoes, this could make a huge difference in how they grow because some tomatoes are um, kind of these rambling vines and others are shrubby. And then some tomato varieties are resistant to like tomato wilt virus and other soil-borne pathogens. And others, like the heirlooms, which I typically like to grow, are not bred for that resistance or hybridized for that resistance. So that could make a huge difference as well. You'd have to look on the plant tags to know if they're um, resistant or not. But those are a couple things that come to my
0: mind right away. There's a lot to investigate there. There are some really Mm -hmm. obvious challenges that gardens have faced this year. We've had some major hail and wind and even snow in the front range since growing season began this year how can we help our gardens endure and recover from extreme weather, especially with summer heat ahead of us? It's it's tough.
1: You know, Every climate has its challenges, but the Front Range of Colorado has so many of them, and they're all rolled into one. We get the hail, we get the extreme temperature changes, we get these horrible windstorms, and the drought. And all of this really adds up. So um, hail is the one that I think of, as the worst because it can decimate your garden in, in just minutes and you're ending up standing in your vegetable garden with a bottle of wine in one hand and a Kleenex in the other because all you can see is mush as far as you can look around you. But vegetables are kind of the easiest ones to get back into shape. They Typically if something is broken off of them I'll trim it off, do a very light fertilization, maybe half rate right, of what the, your label says on your fertilizer and just give them some time. I don't take off dead, you know, broken leaves, battered leaves. I take off broken things, but not the battered stuff because it's still photosynthesizing. And then just wait a little while and see. Our trees tend to take things really hard. We get a lot of breakage from, you know, we've had the snowstorm earlier. I had a lot of breakage from that one. And we had that April freeze. Well, first we had an October freeze that was out of the blue just went from, I think, 70 down to 20. And then we had the one in April that was so harsh. And I lost several small trees to that. So making sure your plants are healthy, that's the first thing. Making sure that they're growing in the right place so that they can do the best that they possibly can is really important. Um, I also like, as far as the Um, plants in the landscape goes I like to work with my native plants a lot of them have very narrow leaves so they can avoid the hail but they'll have that silvery or fuzzy leaf and those are great at helping them to reflect our high uv light or heat it helps keep them cooler so they tend to work well
0: in our climate and that's those are some of the things that I think of There's a lot to do to help the plants recover even after the extreme Mm -hmm. weather. We got a next question from Twitter via the user Rocky Mountain Views. They said, I would like to hear about the different eco-friendly ways to get rid of weeds in the rock borders that so many of us have in Colorado. There is weed fabric underneath, but after a year or two, that doesn't seem to really matter to weeds. Lonnie, what do you think? Well, there's a great
1: article online. If you Google, I think it's Weed fabric is a weed or weed landscape fabric is a weed. It's a really great article that talks about landscape fabric. Um, First, I'd like to address the the term eco-friendly. That means so many things to so many different people. And at times, using a chemical may be the most eco-friendly way you have if you have, let's say, Canada thistle or something like that, which they just dig it out. But I'm going to assume that This person would like to know about non-chemical waste. So the the other... I'm going to step back about weed fabric. The wind carries a lot of dirt and, and soil around, and that dirt and soil ends up being blown into our rock borders. It settles down between the rocks and lands on the landscape fabric. Well, so do the weed seeds that blow around. So once we have enough soil on top of the landscape fabric, and maybe that does take two, three years... Then we get the seeds in there, they germinate, and they start to come up in our rock borders. Typically, they're pretty easy to pull, and pulling is always going to be your most eco-friendly method of weed control. Pulling, hoeing, anything that you're doing mechanical, um, where you're using your own personal energy and you're not using a chemical and you're not um, using big machinery. So that's the problem with the weed fabric in terms of why the why the weeds show up a few years after you've in these uh, these nice rock borders. Um, sometimes, too, the weeds, like bindweed, will come up in between the seams of the weed fabric or it will come up uh, through the weed fabric itself. The stuff is amazing. And, again, you can, you can pull it pretty easily, but you'll be breaking it off at the surface of the weed fabric. You won't be getting it from the roots.
0: And another Twitter so, user jumped in and they suggested something called a thermal weeder. What is that? Does that work? They do. Um, They're really interesting. They're kind of fun to use.
1: It's basically a miniature flamethrower, but it runs off of a small propane bottle like you would take to go camping. Um, I used one for a season. I wanted to try it and see what I thought. You have to burn enough of the crown of the weed that you can really damage the damage the plant enough that it won't come back because if you just burn the top of it off, it's just going to come back from the roots. And I found that it took me a long time on each and every individual weed. The other huge problem with it is you really only want to use it where you have concrete surrounding the area you're working on or pavement because of the fire, fire danger. And there's a significant fire danger and you could torture your whole neighborhood or your house, and I would hate to see that. But they are, they are kind of fun to use, just really time-consuming and a little dangerous for our climate.
0: And I think I may have interrupted your thought on bindweed as it comes up through the fabric, because you can't get it at its roots. Is there a good way of dealing with bindweed that's coming through your fabric? Oh,
1: well, the most eco-friendly is going to be pulling it, and you just pull it, and pull it, and pull it, and pull it. And pull it. You'll never really get rid of it. To truly get rid of some of these very deep-rooted, very persistent weeds. You, you really have to use a multi-pronged approach, and oftentimes that does involve using uh, chemicals as well. You have to, the, the judicious and appropriate use is it, it's a tool that we have in our toolbox, and some people use that tool,
0: and some people don't use that tool. Let's get to another listener question.
4: Hi, there, This is Barbara Sullivan Rarig. Now that Denver water has increased their pH. We've noticed that our climbing bush is getting yellow leaves. Is there anything we can do to counteract
6: the high pH? Thanks so much. So
1: Denver Water,
6: they changed their target for
1: their pH from about 7.8 to about 8.8. And our native soils in Colorado are particularly alkaline. So they tend to be in that um, eight-ish range, you know, anywhere from seven and a half to eight and a half, nine pH range. So that's our natural soil that we're working with. And the small change that, that the water experienced shouldn't really affect a plant. And if it did, it should affect every plant in the garden. So I would look for other issues. I would look at the surrounding area for clues such as, do you have a tree nearby that got particularly larger this year and is blocking out more sun? Or did, was there a change in your watering schedule or amount? Or did you disturb the soil in the area? A lot of people will dig a pathway or dig nearby and not realize that they're really disturbing the roots. And these are more likely culprits than the change in the pH.
0: And Robin Springer of Denver, Colorado built a raised garden bed that gets a lot of sun. She sent us this question. I'm wondering, aside from corn and tomatoes, what else could I plant in that location that can withstand the heat and will not
1: burn up in the direct sun? Thank you for your suggestions. Well, this is interesting because most of us want a lot of sun and heat for our vegetable gardens, but there is a point where it's too much. And I've used shade cloth in my garden. I've made little awnings um, out of variety of materials, T-posts or um, galvanized pipe or what have you, conduit, and then bought some shade cloth from my local garden center. And you can buy it in varying sizes. You don't have to buy a huge amount. And I've actually set up shade, and I keep it over to my tomatoes, even though they like sun, because it protects them a little bit from the hail. So there's one option. You could You could create a cute little arbor with some shade cloth, but other vegetables that really like this would be um, peppers, green beans, onions, and a variety of squash plants. Uh, and not just green beans, but the pole beans, the, the drying beans like kidney beans and pinto beans. So there's, there's a whole lot of options there for that hot, hot, hot sun.
0: Well, are there any other gardening thoughts that you want to leave us with as people go into their summer? Um, you know,
1: I would say that because we're we're all under a lot of stress right now. This the the world's a little uncertain, and when we go out to our gardens, oftentimes we just see the problems that are out there. I've had many problems in my garden this year. I know that my focus is on what is doing well, and then just sitting out in the yard and enjoying what's done, what's what's working, what's beautiful at the moment just enjoying your garden this year. And I know a lot of people are trying gardening for the first time. Um, it's a victory garden concept, and I, I love it. But remember, it's oak fail at gardening. That's how you're going to learn.
0: I really like that perspective. Thank you so much for joining us, Lonnie. Thanks again for having me. CSU Master Gardener Lonnie goday of Bertha joins us seasonally to answer your gardening questions. When we come back, a Denver nurse who's also a dancer brings healthcare workers and artists together in a project about burnout. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: CPR News will bring you the latest on the Colorado Senate primary on Tuesday, with reports throughout the day and a live Colorado Matters at 7 p.m. Ryan Warner and Joanne Allen will be joined by CPR News reporters in the field, including Caitlin Kim in Washington, D.C. Tune in to hear about the race to take on Republican Senator Cory Gardner in the fall, which could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Your source for 2020 election coverage is CPR News. CPR News.
0: Artist and registered nurse Tara Reinders of Denver was supposed to perform her interactive show, First Do No Harm, at a New York City hospital earlier this year. Then COVID-19 hit, but she hasn't lost sight of her work to raise awareness about compassion fatigue and burnout among nurses. She's now collaborating on a project called Resiliency Moments, Art and Healthcare During a Time of Crisis. Tara, welcome back to the program. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. First off, I just want to ask, as a nurse, how are you doing right now? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's, um, you know, we're coming to this point where
6: currently the hospital I work at, we have almost no patients with COVID. So I think we're starting now to take a deep breath a little bit. And um, I think I'm personally just reeling from what just happened and looking to, you um, Resources and figure out um, how do I really feel because when we've been in just such a moment of craziness and survival mode that now I think we're starting to ask these questions and and I think I feel um, really sad right now about what we're experiencing
0: um, in healthcare and experiencing with the loss of um, our patients in COVID. Thank you for sharing this new workshop that pairs healthcare workers with artists. It's called Resiliency Moments and it's meant to create healing experiences. Can you describe what a couple of those experiences could look like? Yeah,
6: so resiliency moments were created out of work that I had done years ago when my sister was in a coma, and um, I was living with her in a rehabilitation center where I washed her and bathed her, and she couldn't speak, so I was her voice and her advocate. And I realized that these intimate moments I was having with her, I wanted to share them through an, art- an artistic lens. So um, it it comes from that originally, but what it's transpired into now is working with um, nurses. So pairing artists, one artist, and one nurse, or social worker, or healthcare provider at the time, and they have 15 minutes together, and the artist creates and creates a moment um, for the nurses to feel seen, heard, and cared for through an artistic practice. And so what this looks like is one artist, Jada Pink. He's currently in Lebanon, and he um, we do this virtually, and he creates Happy Morning, which uses gestures for the nurses. They, they provide and create the gestures that they would like to show for somebody that they've lost. And so they create this movement phrase or this dance that honors someone that they have lost. Another artist, um, Leah Bonfilio out of New York City, who performs with Third Rail Projects, she is an immersive theater artist, so she created this very performative, interactive piece where... They um, together they plant and they talk about gardening and they read a poem and they actually plant something together um, virtually and they watch it grow and she sends pictures as it grows from um, from week to week and they talk about something that they want to let go and something that they want to see flourish. Another um, musician joined us and she um, she writes a song. With a nurse, so the nurse helps create the lyrics, and she they pick the different types of strumming and the different sounds they like, and together they create the song based on the emotions of what they're feeling um, at the moment.
0: And you mentioned that feeling of not being able to move through those feelings during times of chaos and not being able to process them until after. In what ways does this kind of art help nurses express thoughts and emotions that they otherwise not might not be able to express?
6: I see art as um, a form of disruption, which for me is really beautiful because we, in so many ways, we set up these structures for ourselves and in healthcare, we're very set to this one structure that's been created for us and we don't have time and we're not given time to sit and process what we just went through with one patient before we walk to the next patient and take care of them and give pain medicines or um, go to a code. So there's really just no time to process and What art does is it disrupts our normal way of thinking and it creates space for us to think about something that we may do on a daily basis, but think of it from a terms of, gosh, in a way, um, from a more creative space to creative problem with, to creatively problem solve around it.
0: And I'm also wondering how resiliency moments intersects with the racial disparities that we're seeing with the virus and generally in healthcare?
6: Mm-hmm. It's a really good question. And um, from my research, that we did with the workshops that we did for nurses was, which happened before COVID is that with the arts that we were able to increase empathy with nurses and decrease burnout. And when you can increase empathy, you're able to um, understand where someone else is coming from. And I think this is a place if if you're running on um, fatigue and if you're burnt out you're working from this lower reasoning. You're, um, you're working through path of least resistance, and you're not working from a place that has um, from self-awareness or even from someone who's actually done the work around their own racism. So in, if we can combine these efforts of fatigue and burnout and give nurses the tools that they need to do their own personal racism work, as well as the tools to take care of themselves, because they're, they're both taking care of themselves both types of work, then they're able to bring that to the bedside where they're able to actually think and empathize with patients that maybe they weren't able to empathize with before. So in, in a sense, the resiliency moments, my fear is that it's a band-aid, in all honesty, that we we have a much larger issue or root systemically in the hospital, both with racism, white supremacy, and fatigue and burnout that um we're, we we can give our nurses resiliency moments all day long, but if they're still being put into the same situations, um, that they won't actually be able to heal and care for patients in the way that they patients deserve to be cared for. Mm.
0: I want to talk about your COVID Stories project. It collected nurses' experiences during the pandemic. A couple of months ago, you and two of your colleagues at the hospital created a dance to go along with some of these stories and filmed the performance. Let's listen to part of that video while a nurse is talking directly to her first COVID-19 patient.
1: You had a cough, but we're happy and hopeful. We admitted you that day, a Friday, and by Tuesday, you were very sick. In the weeks since, I've not stopped wondering about how you're doing, how your family is coping. Since our meeting, I've had the privilege of caring for you in the ICU, cheering your progress, and doing what I can to convey how much we, your healthcare team, your family, and your community want you to pull through stronger and more resilient after this.
0: Tell me about the dance moves that are seen in the video. What do they represent to you and your colleagues?
6: So yeah, that was Maureen Miller sharing her story and um, what we did is we met, um, it was in the midst of COVID um, and we met online um, through Zoom and we used a prompt that I learned from a professor at CU Boulder, Zuzu. I remember when, when we wrote about a story of loss or grief that we experienced with a patient, after that I felt and then continued the story. And we all took a moment to write these journaling prompts and then um, circled different words that stood out to us within that story. And from those words, we all created gestures um, or movements or um, to share like um, what that feels like somatically through our body. And then we all shared our movements with each other, and then we learned each other's movements. So we were addressing this like as self-care, but also as collective care, so that we were taking on each other's stories. And something that's really powerful about um, the workshops I did that the nurses said was you know, we can talk about our experiences with our um, partners, with our therapists even, but to tell it to another nurse who understands and who gets it is really when um, I felt healed, when um, I know that they understand what I'm going through. So that's taking on each other's movements is a part of that collective care for one another. And then we were able to use these movements and walk down the alley in Capitol Hill right before the howling began and, and share um share what we are going through
0: and you can actually see that in the video when this 8 p.m howl starts and i wonder is that sort of the collective care of the city for its healthcare workers as well
6: yeah i i i think so i think that's what it felt like there was a moment we were all just standing with our hands on our hearts just looking up and um, listening and taking in the howls and that was a moment of care of
0: receiving for us um that we don't necessarily give ourselves time to receive receive as nurses. In your story in the video, you say, we're going to need a different name to describe our mental state. Compassion fatigue and burnout is just not going to cut it. Do you think that there's a lack of understanding from the community about how healthcare workers are impacted by their work mentally? Absolutely. And I think um, there's a disconnect, too, when
6: we're being called heroes. And um, before I remember, many people call me, call nurses angels. And I think in many ways, I appreciate that sentiment. And I know where it's coming from, the desire to honor us. However, I think we're, we're missing words. We're missing the language that actually speaks to what we do with healthcare workers. And, um, and it almost dehumanizes us. It almost takes away any need for action. If you call someone a superhero, you're assuming they have everything they need In order to do what they do to save people. And that just wasn't the case with COVID. We didn't have the proper protective wear. And there's this uh, term, moral injury. Um, I'm working with a nurse researcher, Deborah Kinney, who's um, an expert in this. And what moral injury is, is this idea that we know what we're supposed to do as nurses in order to take care of our patients in the best way possible. And when the system or COVID or whatever it may be prevents that, That causes moral injury to us that we know, you know, there's not a lot of mental health resources. So we're discharging homeless patients back to the streets without any resources. And that just doesn't feel good. I'm not making a difference anymore. And this is why I went into nursing was to make a difference for my patients. And in a lot of ways, we can't do that. Um, And that
0: causes fatigue and burnout as well. Tara, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Denver nurse and dancer Tara Reinders. She's putting on a virtual event in July called Resiliency Moments, Art and Healthcare During a Time of Crisis. We'll put a link with information on how to take part in our podcast at CPR.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.